I believe you are getting somewhere as I believe you're getting farther than anyone. I believe you're turning stones that other people has turned over, but they put the stones back. You're not putting that stone back. You're digging. I'm very seriously with you. I mean, you don't let it go. And it does our heart good. I mean, it does us, it does our heart, our soul, our mind. It does us, it just does us good for what you're doing for us. I mean, you're, you're a blessing. I, th I, I think you rattle some cages. It's about time somebody gets in here and rattles their cages. Yeah, you know, we, we've looked back on things over the years and, we the point. I don't care. I don't care whose cage I rattle. If something comes out that good, if if not, I apologize to them. Be the first to stand up and say I was wrong. But I'm to the point. I don't care. The insecurities that kept trying to claw their way up from the pit of my stomach seem to have been pushed back down by Milton and Gail's reassurance that they feel I'm on the right path, that I'm fighting the good fight and making progress. That's important to me because the whole reason I'm doing this project is for them and for their daughter, for Rhonda's memory and in her honor. But over the past six months, I've come to know the names of several possible suspects. There's her ex-boyfriend, Greg. There's John with his alleged jealousy and abusive nature. There's Mickey Beecher, who supposedly had a secret obsession with Rhonda. And more recently, a new name has come into the picture, Marky the son of a prominent sheriff at the time and a Jeff Davis County Sheriff's deputy himself. I'll let you do the math here. But Marky is someone who people feel may have been protected by that authority. And while it's one thing to hear people make wild accusations or repeat things they've always just heard around town, what if we had proof? What if we had an eyewitness account? That could change the direction of this entire investigation. And after being introduced to a man named Chuck Thompson, that's exactly what's happening. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. My wife was the manager at McDonald's here in Hazelhurst, which ain't three miles from the crime scene. Chuck Thompson had just picked his wife up from her job at McDonald's on the night of Thursday, May 17th, the night Rhonda went missing. As they were headed home, Chuck wanted to drive by the Bell Telephone Road to spot deer, which was out of the way of their usual route. When he tried to turn onto the small dirt road, he and his wife Denise encountered two vehicles parked in the middle of the road. Rhonda's white Chevy Cavalier and a dark-colored pickup truck he says belonged to Marky. Marky was sitting there in the truck. Rhonda was, when she was out of her car, the car door was open. I know exactly how the car was parked. I know her driver door was open. I know Marky was in his truck with his arm hanging out the window and Rhonda was standing about a foot from it when I pulled up. And uh, I asked her, was she all right? Cause Denise said, that's Rhonda, that's Rhonda Cole. Chuck and Denise both knew Rhonda from around town. I asked if she seemed distressed at all when they saw her. And even though she said she was okay, did her body language say something different? Yeah, she she acted, you know, normal. She was standing there in the dirt road, but 
But the way she was pulled in, I would think she was kind of upset, you know. Chuck says he and his wife immediately had a strange feeling. Something just seemed off about the way Marky and Rhonda were pulled off the road that night. Call it intuition. When Denise asked Rhonda if she was okay, it apparently didn't sit well with Marky. And Marky went to popping his gums off. I said a nasty word to him. I told him, I said, I get out of this truck. I ain't scared of you. Deputies don't bother me. I said, you the one breaking the law by blocking the darn road. And Denise said, Rhonda, are you all right? And Rhonda said, yes, Denise, I'm fine. And I locked my truck four-wheel drive and drove around her car across the ditch and went in front of her and went on home. Now, I've heard from several people that Marky could be a bit cocky, at least in his younger days, and he would have been about 28 years old at the time. But as the altercation between the two men took place, Chuck says he noticed something else in Marky's truck. He wasn't alone. There was another guy. It was a man, but I couldn't tell who it was. Two men in a dark-colored truck. It's the same repeated theme over and over. The fox hunters witnessed this. Michelle Anthony was followed by two men in a dark truck on her way to Mickey's house. And there were tire tracks from a truck at the site of the abduction and where Rhonda's body was found. And to my knowledge, Marky's truck was never searched, and he was never looked into as a suspect. After all, he was a deputy and a respected sheriff's son. And while Michelle Anthony gave the best description of the two men that she could, Chuck was unable to see the passenger. You couldn't see him. He had the visor pulled down where you couldn't see his face or nothing, but I heard him when he talked, and it was a man. When I hear that the passenger in Marky's truck had the sun visor down at night, it flew up a red flag. And when I mention this to Chuck, he goes right for the jugular. That seems interesting. You know, why would you have the sun visor down at nighttime? Marky knows he done it, and his daddy helped cover it up. I don't know why they don't arrest him and send him to prison. The day after the Thompson's eyewitness accounts, Chuck actually encountered Marky again. But what got me, see, I was on the fire department then. I was a volunteer fireman. And I went to the fire station the next day. And, they was, you know, everybody was up there. And one, of them, one of the firemen asked, man, did you hear what happened? I said, no, what happened? He said, they found Rhonda Sue Coleman's car over there. And there was some deputies there. Marky was there, and I said, dang, I just talked to Marky last night with Ron, and I'm talking about it's like total silence, everybody split, nobody said another word about it, so I didn't, I didn't think no more about it till they found the body. Chuck is adamant about what he saw that night, and says he did report it to a deputy who stopped into the fire station days later, but he says he never heard any more about it. This stuck with him for the next 25 years. And he tells me that he's certain that Marky is responsible for Rhonda's death or is involved in some way. Of course, that's his opinion, but he can be certain that he was there with Rhonda moments before she was abducted. Chuck says that Marky has lied about this, and he has good reason for saying that. Because he even took a polygraph test and failed it. And now we step into the 21st century, the polygraph. If you don't already know exactly how it works, in a nutshell, a polygraph, popularly referred to as a lie detector test, is a device or procedure that measures and records several physiological indicators, such as blood pressure, pulse, 
respiration, and skin conductivity while a person is asked and answers a series of questions. I've been told by several sources that Markey took a polygraph test at least once in recent years and failed at least once, but I can't verify that as of now. What I can verify, however, is that Chuck and Denise Thompson have both taken polygraph tests based on what they witnessed. And they both passed. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Have you ever had a polygraph test before? Well, everybody's nervous when they take a polygraph. So I'm going to go over some of some things and make sure first you qualify to take a polygraph. About four years ago, as Jody Poncel was neck deep in his investigation after being hired as a private detective by the Colemans, Chuck came forward and told Milton what he saw the night Rhonda disappeared. He hadn't really spoken about it with anyone other than his wife since 1990. But he began to have dreams about the encounter and decided to go straight to Milton. Before I met with Mr. Milton, I was having dreams about that thing every time you turn around. And I spilled everything to Milton. I told him exactly what Marky truck looked like, Rhonda's car, and you know ever since I told him I ain't had a first dream. Milton put Chuck in touch with Jody, and a polygraph was performed by a man named Jerry Rowe, a well-respected former polygrapher for the GBI. He's considered an expert in the field, having conducted over 12,000 tests. I was able to get my hands on a copy of both Chuck and Denise Thompson's videotaped examination. Your first name is Charles? Yes. They call you Chuck? I heard they'll call you Chuck. Well, I'm Jerry Rowe. I'm the polygraph examiner. I've been 33 years with the GBI. I'm retired from there. I remember when this case happened. The first thing Mr. Rowe does is talk to Chuck about what the process is for the test. He makes him feel at ease and allows him time to settle any nerves he might have. And I just say, I appreciate you coming in. You're not a suspect, you're a witness, so. Before strapping on several pieces of monitoring equipment, Mr. Rowe explains the questions he'll be asking in detail. This is to assure that Chuck understands them fully when he's being tested. As well, it gives him time to start getting nervous if he is in fact being untruthful. Consider yourself pretty honest. Oh, I'm honest. Your whole life, if you graded yourself on a scale of one to 10, one, nobody believes nothing Chuck says. 10. And then Mr. Rowe's test gets underway. On the night, Rhonda Coleman went missing. Did you see Mark 
with her. Yes, sir. In the last couple of years, you've lied about anything really serious to stay out of trouble. Might send you to jail. Yes, Did you speak with Marky on the night Rhonda went missing? Yes, sir. Was there a third person in Marky's vehicle when Marky and Rhonda were talking? Yes, sir. The test continues like this for Chuck and then Denise. And after Mr. Rowe's review of the results, in his expert opinion, they were both being completely truthful about what they saw. He shared the results with one of the most experienced people he knew in the polygraph field for a second opinion. And again, the same conclusion was reached. But this is where it starts to get really, really confusing for me. In Chuck's eyewitness account, he stated that he was picking up his wife from work at McDonald's. My wife was the manager at McDonald's here in Hazelhurst, which ain't three miles from the crime scene. And I picked her up at 11.30 because she was pregnant with my son. And we got there probably within 10 minutes, I say, say 11.40. But that timeline doesn't work with what I've already been told. Layla Miller was said to have arrived between 10.45 and 11 p.m., and Rhonda's car had already been abandoned. I questioned Chuck on his timeline, and he remains adamant that he and his wife didn't arrive and encounter both Rhonda and Marky until after 11.30 p.m. He says Layla couldn't have been there earlier than that. There ain't no way she found her car no earlier than that. And when I took my polygraph test, they said ain't nobody ever passed one like as good as I did. And I told them, I said, I have never had one in my life. And I said, everything I'm telling you, the good Lord strike me dead. I said, because I seen it with my own two eyes. I even drew the tire pattern of my truck tires. And this was 20 years ago. While I'm not questioning Chuck or Denise's memory, Something here just doesn't fit together. One of the few records Steve Land kept from Rhonda's case happened to be the dispatch log recorded by the 911 operator who took the first call about her missing. I saw the log myself, and it clearly states that the first call was received at 11.15 p.m. Officer Leroy Sanders was dispatched at that time and arrived at Rhonda's car at 11.45 p.m. The only thing I can think of to make sense of this is that Chuck and Denise arrived at 10.40 p.m., not 11.40 p.m. But then how do we explain them both passing the polygraph? It's simple, really. Chuck nor Denise were lying. They were telling what they truly believe happened and what time they truly believed it to be. And though Chuck's memory does seem to be very good, it was 31 years ago. Is it possible that his timeline was off by approximately an hour. If so, that would fit perfectly into the timeline we currently have. Either way, in my opinion, it's still a very important eyewitness account. Chuck states that he's known Marky most of his life, so he's absolutely positive that that's who was speaking with Rhonda. But I ask why he thinks Marky might have reason to kill Rhonda. Because she was in love with him. She was in love with Marky. See, I think she was pregnant. And she was fixing to tell his wife. He wouldn't leave his wife. Everybody knew that. Everybody around town knew that. They were seeing each other. 
she was going to tell his wife about the affairs, what she's going to do, and they killed her. That's a pretty big bombshell to hear. While I had heard people say that Marky and Rhonda may have been involved with each other romantically at some point, I'd never heard she was pregnant. But if that were the case, could that be motive for murder? Of course, the only way to verify if this is true or not is to see the autopsy report, which, as we know, is under lock and key with the GBI. Unless those records are released, or someone who had access to that autopsy report comes forward, we might never know. What got me after I come forward and they gave us the polygraph test, people was coming all out of the woodworks telling this and telling that. Why wasn't it told to start with? Luckily, people are starting to come forward, little by little. People like Ricky Tompkins. Hi, this is Ricky. Ricky is Southern, even by Southern standards. A good old country boy. People around town know him as Rat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, somebody nicknamed that in the seventh grade and it stuck with him. He plays guitar, loves to fish and tinker with electronics, is constantly cracking jokes, and is even an inventor. One of my favorites is the wiener cleaner, which is basically a brush you strap onto your dog so that he sweeps the floor as he walks. He reached out to me because he said he had something important that I'd want to hear. I checked up on him around town and heard that he's a straight shooter, that I could trust whatever it was he was going to tell me. So I called him up. After hearing the Thompson's eyewitness account, the story Rat shares with me makes my jaw drop to the floor. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Named one of the best personal finance podcasts, The Stacking Benjamin Show with Joe and his friends makes financial literacy fun. I got an email today from the LenPenzo.com HR department. I find oh. it really interesting. I'm an employee of one at this company, so but somebody from the HR department sent me an email telling me that I had a raise. If I just opened the attachment, I could see how much my raise was. Make sure you click on the links that are in there, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. This is I'm excited. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. Oh, I remember the whole thing <clears throat> like it was yesterday. Me and my buddy, um, Chip Wood, he's a pharmacist here in town, but he's got a cabin out the, what do you call off the Bell Telephone Road out there, where all that happened And uh, a little bridge, out, a little island out in the middle of it, so in the Evening time, me and him, and me got there, and we was going to build a bridge to the island. We'd worked on that a while. It got dark, then we'd uh, go on there and lift weights and go home, you know? Now, because Rat speaks with such a thick southern accent, it'll be hard for some of you to follow along. But I want you to hear him tell his story, so I'll help out a bit. Basically, what he said was that he and his friend Chip, who owned a cabin by a lake where they were working to build a bridge to a small island in the middle, had stopped working for the night, lifted weights for a while, and then sat down to relax a bit before heading home. Chip dozed off 
and Rat left. Uh, back then I had an 86 Camaro, and it's a half a mile from the paved road down the road to the cabin. And I was easing on back up to the road. And usually I, I live about what they call Alma Highway, going toward Alma, Georgia. Rat left the cabin in his 86 Camaro and drove down a dirt path towards the gate at the edge of the property that leads to the main road. I got to the gate, I'd take a right and go down there and cut across this back road and come out at the house. But that night, for some reason, I got out of the gate and I had this, you had this strange feeling like something ain't right, you know, something going on or something. I had that feeling. And for some reason, I took a left and started easing before town. Felt like, man, I'm going to get home and on that machine, they're going to be some bad news or something. And um, I was just easing along there. I come by that road, it's cold. When Rat got to the gate at the main road, instead of taking the right turn he would usually make, a strange feeling that came over him made him take a left instead. And I was just poking along, and um, I was dabbling with my radio, looking over that way, and my clock said 1046. And I'm one of them kind of all, you know, a clock that I'd be dead on, I think, on like for it to be off. And I look, and uh, there's Marky's car sitting there parked by this little white car, and they ain't even hardly 50 yards down this little two-path road, you know. And the reason I know it's his car, because I've known him all my life. Rat stating he had just happened to check the clock on his car radio at 10.46 p.m., a moment before witnessing Marky's deputy car with Rhonda's car, is critical. That works with the timeline of events that we've heard from Layla, Milton, Gale, and law enforcement. The way you can tell it's his car, you know how most law cars have them dark blue light tinted windows. His, his had a tint on it that was the color of, um, I don't know if you knew what color white is this, and Dale wine is. It's that color. His tint was pinker looking like that, except it was darker, a little bit darker looking than that wine color. And there's a piece of it skin off on the back passenger window. With the unique color of window tint on the car, which Rat says was kind of the color of white Zinfandel wine, though a little darker, there's no doubt in his mind that this was Marky's car. He even says some of the tint was peeling off one of the rear windows. That little white car, the door on it was open, and it wasn't open about three-quarters of the way because that car was parked so close to it. But the interior light was on in it, and I got listening, and there wasn't nobody in the little white car. I almost blew the horn because I know Marky real good, and I thought, that's what I'm going to be working here he is out chasing women. Rat tells me he could see the interior light was on in the deputy car, but because of the tint, he couldn't tell who was inside. The light was on in Rhonda's car as well, and he could see that it was empty. That was his deck-blown car sitting there, and his interior light was on, but you couldn't see inside of what was going on in his car because of the tent, you know. How was his car positioned? It was uh, like it was like she pulled over on the right, and he pulled up beside her. 
50 yards or so. It wasn't very far she pulled off on her. But he had pulled down next to her car? Yeah, pulled right up beside her. To like where she could get out of her door and hop in on his passenger side. That's what it was. And her car door was like an interior light was on. And that's what I saw that night. But again, there is a discrepancy here in Rat's story. Not only with Chuck and Denise Thompson's account, but with the tire tracks found at the scene. Rat said the car he identified as Marky's was pulled next to Rhonda's, but we know there were tire tracks from a truck at a 90-degree angle to the rear of her car, and that Thompson said Marky was in a truck. But we've also heard that there could have been two or more people involved in Rhonda's death. So could both of these accounts be accurate if there had been more than one vehicle parked near Rhonda's at different times? And it's worth noting that while Rat says he was certain that it was Marky's car, he never said that he physically saw Marky there. Could someone else have been driving that patrol car? And could Marky have been there in his truck moments later? But I had to ask, did Rat not tell anyone about this account until now? And if not, why? And sometime later on, Gail ran up on me. And I reckon, I didn't think I'd told him, but Yep, maybe one or two more close friends about that. Uh, she asked me, said, ain't you got something uh, you need to tell me about? I said, no, ma'am, I'd rather not. And uh, she said, well, I got a special DBI agent coming down here from Atlanta just to talk to you. And I said, well, that's good. Yeah, I'll talk to him. But I never heard anything out of him, you know. Gail approached Rat on the street and asked if he would speak to a GBI agent that had been assigned to Rhonda's case around 2017. Rat agreed, but when he spoke to Special Agent Chad Locke, he seemed to make Rat out to be a suspect at first. And in Rat's eyes, Locke didn't take his eyewitness account seriously. I talked to him. Anyway, he rambled on a little bit, and I said, well, I'm through talking with you now. And uh, he got up and walked out, and I walked out and left. <laughs> Not the last time I've ever been asked about it. I need to process this a bit. It's potentially huge. So if what Rat says is true, that is now three separate people on two separate occurrences that say they witnessed Marky with Rhonda just minutes before she was thought to have been abducted. I've had people in town vouch for Rat's character, and he seems to be an honest man. He does joke a lot, but each time we've spoken about this, he gets very serious. But an honest man or not, let's assume this account is factual. We have a problem. Rat said he saw Marky's patrol car, but Chuck said Marky was in his dark-colored truck. Both are positive that these were Marky's vehicles. They've known him most of their lives. And Chuck said he even had a verbal altercation with Marky and passed a polygraph. So now what? Even if the vehicle Marky was in is in question, both accounts could still be factual. After 31 years, maybe one of these witnesses has incorrectly remembered the vehicle, or perhaps it was too dark to really see, or were they too preoccupied with the odd-feeling situation to really even accurately note the vehicle he was in? Perhaps they just associated it with one of the vehicles they knew he typically drove. But the fact that all three people are certain that they encountered Marky that's the fact I'm interested in. So now, 
I need to do everything I can to make sure that Rat is telling me the truth. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032-2015. Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.